Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 6, 27 through 36. Let me ask God's help first. Father, thank you for sending Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, the one who loves us. Open your word to us. He told us to ask, and we are asking, Father. Open our eyes and ears to hear, to see. For your kingdom's sake. Amen. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Plain in Luke, is continuing here. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. The word of the Lord. A couple of weeks ago, I shared a well-known psychological study from Stanford University in the 1970s called the Marshmallow Experiment, which was about the delay of gratification in children. Well, today, I want to begin by talking about an, another famous study uh, called the Milgram Experiment, which took place at Yale in the 1960s, uh, which was about obedience uh, to authority in adults. In the wake of the Holocaust and the reports from many German soldiers that they were just following orders, the researcher, uh, Stanley Milgram, wanted to study how people obeyed authority. And he set up an experiment in which there were two participants, a student and a teacher. They were put in two adjoining rooms, and the teacher was told that their job was to ask the student a series of questions through a microphone, and whenever the student got a wrong answer or was silent, uh, the teacher was told that the study required them uh, to give an electric shock to the subject. Uh, the, the teacher stood in front of a very serious-looking shock generator with shock levels starting at 15 volts and then increasing in 15-volt increments all the way up to 450 volts. Uh, the switches were labeled slight shock, moderate shock, danger, severe shock, and then the final three switches were simply labeled with an ominous XXX. Now, the person supposedly being shocked was in on the experiment, and so they were not actually suffering. 
Uh, but as the shocks increased, they would cry out, uh, they would bang on the wall, they would plead to be released from the study, uh, and they would even uh, complain that they had a heart condition. Uh, meanwhile, the scientist running the experiment would tell the teacher that the testing required that they continue to administer the shocks. Uh, the experiment requires that you continue, they would say, prodding the teacher to, to keep going. What was the result of the Milgram experiment? Well, it showed that those in the role of the teacher were surprisingly compliant. Uh, following orders, as the shocks became more and more intense, 65% of the participants delivered the maximum shocks of 450 volts because they were told to by a scientist. Uh, Milgram also followed up with a later experiment where he showed that if there was another person in the room, anyone at all, who questioned what was happening, 90% of the teachers would stop and refused to go along with the experiment. It took just one person who was willing to raise their voice. This fall, in our study uh, of the fruit of the Spirit, we are asking the question, what does it mean to be a person of character, someone who doesn't just go along? And specifically, what kind of character marks a follower of Jesus. As we've seen, the fruit of the Spirit is much more than behavior change. This basic image of fruit is important. Just as organic fruit is evidence of what was going on inside a seed, spiritual fruit is the evidence of what is going on inside a person. What we do shows what we are. So today we're considering the trait of goodness. What does it really mean to be good? And to help us think about this, we're reflecting on this teaching of Jesus from Luke 6. As uh, David mentioned, this is a section of the Gospel of Luke that's often called the Sermon on the Plain. It's a, a parallel to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And we find here some of the most well-known teaching of Jesus and also the most challenging. So what can we learn today from Jesus about goodness? There are three questions that we can ask this text today. First, what is goodness, according to Jesus? Second, what is the benefit of the kind of goodness that Jesus describes? And finally, what is the source of this goodness? So let's look at each one of these questions. Uh, basically, the, the nature of goodness in verses 27 to 31, the benefit of goodness in verses 32 to 34, and the source of goodness in verses 35 36. So, in, in verses 27 to 31, Jesus gives four specific commands. And then he gives four specific applications. And then finally, in verse 31, he summarizes his teaching in the famous golden rule. So let's take a closer look at what he says here in each part. So first, he commands his followers to do four things. Four things, always, no matter what the circumstances. To love, to do good, to bless, and to pray. Of course, what is shocking is not just that he commands these activities, 
but whom he requires one to love, to do good to, to bless, and to pray for. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Then, in verse 29, as if to prove that he really means this, he gives four very specific applications related to situations of violence, extortion, solicitation, and, and robbery. In each case, Jesus urges a response to offense that is not marked by retaliation or revenge, but by love, goodness, blessing, and prayer. Now, I wanted to, to slow us down and, and take a, a close look at these verses because on the one hand, these are famous words of Jesus. Uh, they're very familiar and they're easy to pass over quickly. But on the other hand, when we consider them carefully, this teaching can make us very uncomfortable <laughs> or even, uh, for some of you, maybe even offended by what Jesus says here. What? kind of life is he calling for? Two points. First, what Jesus is not saying, and then what he is saying. I want to be clear about what Jesus is not saying here. By calling for an attitude and actions marked by this kind of super abundant goodness, Jesus is not denying the ugly realities of verbal, emotional, psychological, physical, sexual, or spiritual abuse. I, I wrestled this week especially with that word abuse in this translation. Other translations say mistreat, which is a more general word, but I, but I think abuse is more accurate here. I, I wrestled with this because I know that for some of you, this word and, and this command of Jesus is difficult in ways that I can't even begin to comprehend. So I want to be really clear that Jesus is not saying that abuse in any context should be ignored or swept under the rug or hidden to protect leaders or institutions. It's a good thing that in our society in these last few years that we've been forced to confront abuse of all sorts in, in new ways. And this is true in the church as in any other place in society. Sadly, there, there's an automatic self-protection that happens in institutions and in churches that allows abusive leaders to go unchallenged. Our, our own denomination, the Christian Reformed Church, recently brought a report to our churches on preventing abuse of power in the church, and it's an active conversation. Uh, even on our own church council. For example, we've established a team that we're calling the Safe Church Review Team, uh, led by Stephen Van Manen, uh, Jim Bachheim, and, and Sharon Redinger. And you're going to be hearing more from that team in the coming weeks about how we should respond to this uh, denominational uh, call for thinking about these issues. So Jesus is not ignoring things that are wrong? But what is he saying? And here we get to the heart of the challenge, because what he does say 
is that there is a goodness and an integrity to which you can commit yourself no matter what the circumstances. Your actions, he is saying, are not dependent on the actions of others. Your actions are not dependent on the actions of others. It is always possible to be a person who loves even when you are treated badly, who does good, who blesses, who prays in response. Jesus is speaking here about individuals. There's still a place for the police or, or courts of justice. Uh, John Stott once said, if my house is burgled one night and I catch the thief, it may well be my duty as a Christian to sit him down and give him something to eat and drink while at the same time telephoning the police. The point is, as you experience injustice, and Jesus assumes that his followers will, what kind of a person will you be? Will you be someone who perpetuates cycles of revenge and wrongdoing? Or will you be a person who turns the other cheek and is willing to even give up your own rights for the sake of a greater good? As someone has said, to turn the other cheek is not a passive response, but a provocative response to an offense. This brings us to our second point today, the benefit of this kind of goodness. That's the word that Jesus uses in verses uh, 32 to 34. He gives three examples here of mutual exchange. You love me, and I will love you. You do good to me, and I will do good to you. You lend to me, and I will pay you back. In each case, Jesus says, uh, this is good behavior, but not anything unusual. Even sinners do the same, he says. The, the commentator, Joel Green, remarks that, that Roman society was built on these kinds of, of exchanges of, uh, of gifts and favor and patronage. Uh, but Jesus calls his followers to something new. And Green says, in the ethics of the Roman world, a patron solidifies his or her position in the community by giving, by placing others in his or her debt, and receiving from the obliged acts of service and reverence. But in this new economy of Jesus, the patron gives without any strings attached. He calls us to love, to do good, and to give, expecting nothing in return. What is the benefit of this kind of goodness? Well, it frees you from a life that's centered on yourself. Let me explain. Jesus here is critiquing the ways in which even our goodness can be a form of self-centeredness. In his book, The Reason for God, uh, the author Tim Keller illustrates the subtle forms that this kind of self-centeredness can take uh, through the story of Jekyll and Hyde. In Robert Louis Stevenson's story, uh, Jekyll is a doctor who comes to realize that his life is a compound of good and evil. So he comes up with a potion that can separate his two natures, 
uh, so that his good self will be free from the influence of his evil self. And the plan is that his bad self, uh, uh, Mr. Hyde, will only come out at night. And his good self, Dr. Jekyll, will come out during the day. Well, what happens is when he takes the potion, he turns out to be far more evil than he ever realized. Mr. Hyde is totally centered on himself. He, he thinks only of his own desires. He doesn't care who he hurts in order to please himself. He kills if someone gets in his way. And Dr. Jekyll is so frightened and, and horrified by what he is capable of doing as Mr. Hyde at night that he resolves never to take the potion again. Instead, he devotes himself to charity and to good works to atone for what Mr. Hyde has done. And he says to, he does this to smother his selfish nature with acts of unselfishness. But one day, he is sitting on a bench at a park, thinking about all the good he has been doing and how much a better man he has become than most people, uh, despite the history of Mr. Hyde. But as he congratulates himself on the good that he has done and, and all that he has done to relieve suffering, something happens. And here's what he says. But as I smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my act of goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect, at the very moment of that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea, and the most dreadful shuddering. I looked down. I was once more Mr. Hyde. For the first time, Jekyll becomes Hyde without the potion. Why? Here, here's, here's what Keller says. Like so many people, Jekyll knows he is a sinner. So he tries desperately to cover his sin with great piles of good works. Yet his efforts do not actually shrivel his pride in his self-centeredness. They only aggravate it. They lead him to superiority, self-righteousness, pride. And suddenly, look, Jekyll becomes Hyde. Not in spite of his goodness, but because of it. You see the point? You can be very bad, hurting others, hurting yourself, and be totally self-centered. But you can also be very good, doing everything right, and yet still be totally self-centered, self-righteous, and prideful. And it's often self-righteous and prideful people who end up treating others the worst of all. The goodness of Jesus, the kind of goodness that can love enemies and do good to those who hate you, this, this kind of goodness is, is something radically different than how we normally think about goodness. This is a goodness that exposes our hearts in some new way. This brings us to our last point today. What is the source 
of this kind of goodness. Jesus tells us in verses 35 and 36, But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. There is a reward, Jesus says, for those who obey his commands. But the reward is not something in this world or even for the future. The reward is this resemblance to the Father in heaven, looking like God himself, being renewed in the image of God. This is what it means to be sons of the Most High, as Jesus says. It means to share the family resemblance with God, taking on more of his character and, and his likeness. For Christians, God is good in his very being. This means that goodness is not something for us to achieve, but something that we receive in relationship with God, who is goodness itself. And when you love God for who he is, and not just what you get from him, then you will begin to bear fruit that reflects his character. This happens through repentance and faith, as we've seen throughout this whole series. Uh, in repentance, repentance from the heart, uh, we don't just confess the bad things that we do. We also confess the good things that we do that are based still in our self-centeredness and our pride. And in faith, we turn away from ourselves to trust in Christ as the revelation of God's mercy and love. This kind of repentance and faith has the power to break down our self-centeredness in new ways. So often, we know that we want to be good, like Dr. Jekyll, but we pursue goodness through either fear or pride. When we're prideful, we often compare ourselves to other people, and, and we motivate ourselves by trying to be better than others. When we're fearful, we do what is right, but only because we're afraid of the consequences if we don't. But the gospel takes away our pride, as we've seen, by showing us that the only one who is really good is God, and we all stand in need of his mercy. And the gospel also takes away your fear, because if you know you are loved by your Father in heaven, then you can love and do good to others without needing their affirmation or their acceptance in return. As the Puritan writer David Dixon said, I have taken all my good deeds and all my bad deeds and have cast them together in a heap before the Lord and have fled from both to Jesus Christ, and in him I have sweet peace. Let me close uh, with an example of something of what this looks like in practice. Now, last week in our child safety training, CJ offered a quote from the lawyer, advocate, and former gymnast, uh, Rachel Den Hollander, who was instrumental in the trial and conviction of Larry Nasser, the, the doctor who abused her and, and dozens of other 
young gymnasts. In her testimony at the trial in 2018, uh, Den Hollander spoke directly to Nasser about the ways in which uh, he'd become twisted by his selfish desires. She said, you have become a man ruled by selfish and perverted desires, a man defined by his daily choices repeatedly to feed that selfishness and perversion. She spoke the hard truth to him. But then she did something remarkable. She brought a word of hope to this man who had hurt her so horribly. She loved her enemy. She said, in our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me though I extend that to you as well. Friends, it's when you can embrace truth and grace for yourself and for others that you discover true goodness, a goodness that reflects the goodness of God. In a moment, we're going to sing our song of response. It's entitled, drive out the darkness. This is one of those songs that's really a prayer, uh, asking Jesus to come, to be our light, and to drive out the darkness in our lives and in the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, love for our enemies takes us along the way of the cross and into fellowship with the crucified. Jesus is the one as the crucified Son of God, who shows you the character of the Father's suffering, self-sacrificial love, and he is the one who invites you as his brothers and sisters by faith to join him by loving others as you have been loved. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father God, you know all the ways in which we cling to a superficial goodness and fail to be people who are good deep down in our hearts. Thank you for your kindness and your mercy to us in Christ. By your Holy Spirit, help us to turn away from fear and from pride 
and may we receive your goodness as a gift, uh, the gift of your presence and the gift of your power to love as you love, to give as you give, and to serve as you serve. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.